0: Well, please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to second Peter chapter two, second Peter chapter two, and we'll read verses one through the middle of verse three. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Much in the same way that a king engages a cupbearer to spare him from the poison that he might suffer from unto death, the true king calls upon us, really, to examine what we might otherwise be destroyed by. But in our culture that has come to really be anathema, to be a person who is willing to look at truth carefully and therefore to examine those who uh, intend to communicate truth is to be judgmental. And uh, those who judge truth and judge those who deliver truth are therefore judged while the person who's doing that judging says it's wrong to judge. Interesting, huh? Quite ironic that the person who judges those who judge doesn't realize that he himself is judging. Now, every time you or I do anything, we make some sort of judgment. You know, I made a judgment to take my coat off this morning. That was a judgment. Are you angry with me for that? Of course not. But when it comes to judging those who judge the word wrongly and uh, deliver it wrongly, somehow or another, that's off-limits. Somehow or another, the Word of God has become this vessel or this tool about which anyone can say nearly anything. And it typically comes down to this. Well, don't judge the man of God. You know, don't touch God's anointed. That's kind of the extreme expression or misuse of Scripture. Don't judge God's man. I saw a Facebook post recently where one man was challenging another with regard to some really, really bad use of of God's word, some misuse of God's word. And the guy's response was, respect the office. Respect the office. Don't touch me. How dare you say anything about my efforts to deliver the word of God? And so the man or the woman who communicates the word of God is somehow off limits, and he gets a pass because he's doing a good work. Can't we all just get along is really kind of the idea. How could you judge someone? How could you bring any kind of critical thinking upon someone's effort to communicate truth? And I just read to you why. In 2 Peter and, of course, in Jude, the book of Jude, we're not only called upon to recognize that there are false teachers, there will be false teachers, but we have a responsibility to expose them. I tried to illustrate that last week by calling those of you who are parents to think of what you would do or what you did do, what you have done in an effort to protect your children from someone who would lie to them. Would you not go to your children at least afterward, if not right there in the moment, and say, that person's not telling you the truth, he wants to harm you, he wants something from you? One of my professors at the Master Seminary shared some time ago that a man had come to his door with his son. And that man was representing the Jehovah's Witness cult. And uh, this is Dr. Irv Business. He's an extremely gracious man. And he said to that man, I'd be happy to listen to what you have to say if you'll listen to what I have to say. So they had a very pleasant and engaging discussion. And at the close of that discussion, he knelt down to the nine-year-old boy right before he and his father walked out of Dr. Boosnitz's home and said to him, young man, I want you to know something. What your father has expressed today is a lie, and it will send you to hell. But what I've told you is the truth, and by God's grace, if you will believe that truth, God will be good to you. Dr. Boosness is honestly one of the most gracious men I've ever known. And it is that kind of credibility that leans heavily upon, that rests completely in the truth of God's word, that gives a person the confidence to say what it says regardless of the circumstance. The little boy had a listening ear. He knew what he needed to tell him, and he did. And this is the mindset that you and I must have, whether it is in today's venue or another Last time I gave you a little bit of a breakdown of chapter 2, and I think it's important that you you understand this and you remind yourself of it as we go, because you could get lost in, now where were we, where are we going, and so I want to give these to you again. You don't really need to write these down, you can if you like, but I'm going to move through them pretty quickly. There really are four sections in chapter 2, and the first section we started last week, we'll finish that today, and it is the discovery and deception of false teachers. And, And really the issue is the deception of false teachers, as you see in your title for the message. So it's the deception of false teachers. We discover that there are false teachers in 2 Peter 2, uh, but we really deal with mostly with the deception of false teachers. Okay, so that's verses 1 through 3a. That's where we are today. The second section is the division and deliverance from false teachers, and we're going to really emphasize delivery or deliverance from false teachers. How do you address false teaching? How do you Come out from underneath it. How do you help others escape the fire that they are in when they are under the deception of false teaching? So, again, the division and deliverance from false teachers. And that's verses 3b through 10a. And then the third section, debauchery of false teachers. And so we're really going to get in because Peter calls us to get into an understanding of the lengths to which they go in their deception, in their evil, to deceive people and to gain from them. That's verses 10b through 16, the debauchery of false teachers. And then last, the destruction of false teachers. And that's verses 17 through 22, the destruction of false teachers. And so that not only includes the the destruction that the false teachers will one day experience themselves, that they will be destroyed, but it, it also addresses the destruction that false teachers intend to bring upon others. So that's where we'll go in this chapter, because that's where Peter has taken us. So back to uh, two weeks ago, points one and two. We'll try to go through these quickly, quick review. Number one, point one for this two-part message is false teachers will enter the church. False teachers will enter the church. Peter, as you know, says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So it's not a matter of it being a possibility that false teachers are going to slip into the church. They definitely will. And you you recall from Acts 20, verses 29 to 30, where Paul warned Timothy and the other elders in the church at Ephesus that they would sneak in, you remember this, as fierce wolves. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, ravenous wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Those who have a, a syrupy, sweetness about them might not necessarily be sincere that syrupy sweetness might simply be a cover for the depth of debauchery that rests underneath that and their desire is to destroy the flock verse 30 in Acts 20 then says and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them and I just want to make a side note here we'll talk more about this later we talked about it last time but one of the telltale signs of a man or a woman who is committed to false doctrine, is that he will not acknowledge that he's been wrong. He refuses to even hear someone's concern about his teaching or what he has communicated. It's a telltale sign. We talked about that. So now, what was a false prophet to which Peter refers when he says they also rose among the people? There is a difference between a false prophet and a false teacher, but not much. For our purposes, we're really looking at the reality that a false teacher communicates falsehood. He teaches falsehood. In the day to which Peter was referring regarding false prophets, it's really the Old Testament era. Where the the prophet was, according to Deuteronomy 18, considered a false prophet if he was wrong 12 times, right? Eight times, right? Six times, right? Once. If he was wrong in his prophetic teaching, one time. He was considered a false prophet and he got a slap on the wrist, right? No, he was executed. And God is no less serious today than he was then about false teaching. We are in a different economy of punishment or discipline in the New Testament era. But still, God is every bit as serious about the dissemination or the preaching, the proclamation of his word. So again, false teachers will Enter the church just as false prophets entered the assembly in the Old Testament era. But in this text, still under point one, still under our review, just as there will be false teachers among you really is the issue. There will be false teachers. Point number two, again in review. False teachers will smuggle in doctrine that destroys. They will smuggle in doctrine that destroys. They'll secretly bring it in. Peter here is addressing doctrine that kills souls eternally. They sneak it in in the same way a drug mule smuggles in drugs, hidden among the good, solid possessions of what appears to be a responsible, upstanding member of the community. He hides it well, and he doesn't bring it out of hiding until he's given clearance. And he's convinced the coast is clear. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He shows himself to be on board to the degree that he really is on board. And then when the timing is right and he feels like he has enough of a following, enough of a a gathering, he ushers in false doctrine and it typically has a devastating effect. And what is that devastating effect? Well, specifically, they deny the master who bought them. They deny the master who bought them. We worked through this lengthily, I won't go through the whole thing, but the point here is that this is a wholehearted expression of an unwillingness to obey the authoritarian master, Jesus Christ, the one who holds all authority. Despotane is the Greek term. It's the term from which we get our term despot. He is sovereign. He is owner. He is ruler. Jesus is master. Now, is... Peter saying here that false teachers are actually bought. No, he's speaking tongue-in-cheek. He's saying very clearly that they are not believers. So the question then is, are they redeemed? If they're redeemed, where do they spend eternity? If they're redeemed, if they're purchased, if they're bought, they spend eternity in heaven. That's what it means to be purchased. They, because they are false teachers who have denied the truth, will spend eternity suffering the consequences of their faithlessness. And I said this last time, I want to say it again. It's every bit as logical that Christ purchased one who has denied the Savior and is a false teacher as it is that he purchased those who are in hell today for rejecting Christ. Did Christ pay punishment for them or do they pay their punishment? I want to read to you quickly from David Klotfelter and I hope this will help you understand this. This is from his book entitled Sinners in the Hands of a Good God. It is Arminianism that presents logical impossibilities. Arminianism tells us that Jesus died for multitudes that will never be saved including millions who never so much as heard of him. It tells us that in the case of those who are lost, the death of Jesus represented in Scripture as an act whereby he took upon himself the punishment that should have been ours, Isaiah 53.5, was ineffective. Christ has suffered once for their sins, but they will now have to suffer for those same sins in hell. The Arminian atonement has the initial appearance of being very generous, but the more closely we look at it, the less we are impressed Does it guarantee the salvation of any person? No. Does it guarantee that those for whom Christ died will have the opportunity to hear of him and respond to him? No. Does it in any way remove or even lessen the sufferings of the lost? No. In reality, the Arminian atonement does not atone. It merely clears the way for God to accept those who are able to lift themselves up by their own bootstraps. So again, as we've said a number of times, if Jesus paid the penalty, then you don't pay the penalty. If he paid the penalty, the penalty is paid, the purchase is made. So when Peter refers to them as those who have denied the master who bought them, he's talking about false teachers who claim what? They claim to have been bought by him, and yet they clearly have not been bought by him. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And then in verse 7, 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. John 10, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And many people at this point will scream John 3.16, and we say that's our verse too. The passages on propitiation point to the reality that what Christ did was in fact efficacious. It was in fact propitiatory. It wasn't possibly propitiatory. It wasn't a gamble. Christ didn't roll the dice hoping that some might Adhere to his requests by coming unto him and granting him grace because he had granted them grace. We spoke of Charles Finney as a major player in this heresy, the heresy that led to many, many false conversions. That's a person who absolutely refuses to be confronted with his falsehood. And so what did that lead to? It led to a willingness to persuade people into false conversions. No problem. I'll just get them to do whatever I can get them to do. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I attempt to twist people's arms into heaven? That's what he was trying to do. Rather than trusting the Lord to save the elect, to be faithful to the call to preach the gospel. And so this morning we pick up with point number three. Point number three from our text, false teachers will bring about their own destruction false teachers will bring about their own destruction and again you can see that right out of the third part of verse 1 where peter says bring upon themselves swift destruction next time we'll look at the remainder of verse 3 but here's what it says we'll just look at it briefly right now it says their condemnation from long ago is not idle It's not resting dormant. And their destruction is not asleep. In other words, God has not shelved their destruction, saying, well, maybe we'll, you know, maybe we'll visit that, maybe we won't. It's in God's perfect, patient timing that the destruction of false teachers is coming. This idea of false teachers uh, being brought about to their own destruction is a self inflicted, eternal torment. It's personally earned perdition. Their destruction is imminent. We see a case of this in Second Thessalonians 2, in verse 3, where Paul says, "'Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction.'" who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. What is his ultimate destiny? It's one of great destruction. Why? Because of teaching falsehood. By the way, you know the name Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland not only communicates that he himself is a god. He communicates that all Christians are gods. That's false teaching. That's heresy. Kenneth Copeland is among the wealthiest of the false teachers in the world and one of the most convincing. Why? Because a large percentage of what he says is true. He's an arrogant, arrogant man who refuses to be challenged on his false teaching, and friends, his destruction is imminent. In Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, right? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, that leads to what? To destruction. The Arminian way is wide. It's easy. It's a simple pathway into easy believism. Just bring yourself to whatever God you choose to bring yourself to. Now, in defense of Arminianism, you might not have thought you would ever hear me use that phrase. But in defense of Arminianism, there are Arminians who love Christ. There are people committed to Arminian theology who love the Lord. And so the result is that at some point, they've got to grapple with the reality that Arminianism is a wide path unto destruction that doesn't jive with the God of the Bible. And frequently, what this leads to is a more honest understanding of the character of God, that God does not just leave people unto themselves. He does not just leave the elect to figure it out on their own. God saves the elect. He then gets all the glory. The person passionately committed to Arminian theology has to be hard-hearted, if he refuses to acknowledge that the God that he thought he brought himself to is not the God of the Bible. Why? Quite plainly, in the words of Jesus Christ, you did not choose me, I chose you. He then gets all the glory so our responsibility then must be to acknowledge that false teachers will bring, bring about their own destruction. But friends, listen to me. Listen to me. In the pathway of life, in the pathway of Christian life, there is a parting of ways by those who are false teachers and those who have simply been misled. You cannot hang on to an Arminian God if you are faithful to the scripture. You can't cling to a God who left it up to you because you were totally depraved, and God is totally sovereign. As we look at Jesus' words here in Matthew 7, verse 13, let's not forget what else he says. In verse 14, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And it shouldn't surprise us, I don't think it does surprise us, that many people in religious circles By the way, they hate the word religion, although James says that true religion is to visit widows and orphans. Those in religious circles who amass mounds and mounds and mounds of people by creating a scenario that's just very, very enjoyable, no matter where your heart is. Come as you are. You've heard that phrase. Come as you are. And then there's no call to personal holiness for which... The elect are predestined. There's no call to that. Why? Because it doesn't work in a man-centered system. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I saw a survey online a couple of days ago that said, if church discipline were exercised on everyone engaging in flagrant sin, how many people would be left in your church? Now we wouldn't have a problem with that in our church. But in many churches, it's not addressed. You've been there. You've seen those situations where flagrant sin is known by many people in the congregation and people are frustrated because they're thinking, are we called to what the Bible talks about or not? Someone recently told me that in a very, very large system of churches, it was said one of the greatest mistakes they ever made was encouraging the people to read their Bibles. Because what inevitably happened was that they began to see something very different from what they were hearing from the pulpit. And so you have Calvinist theology being literally born out of this very Arminian system because men are being faithful to the scripture. They're teaching what it actually says, and they've got targets on their backs. Pretty soon they've found themselves out of a job. Well, the reality that false teachers will come under self-inflicted destruction is not something over which to rejoice. Let's not ever let ourselves slip into this mindset that isn't it great, that they'll get what they deserve. And the truth is, Arminianism can lead to that because Arminianism says you're responsible and you can do it. Calvinism says you're responsible and you can't do it. So you trust the Lord who accomplished it. This is not something over which to rejoice. It is a serious expression of the condition of the deceived, false teacher. And you and I should weep. You and I should never allow ourselves to slip into an arrogance that says, well, I chose Jesus. My life is right and theirs isn't. They're going to get what's coming to them. We should never, ever think that way. The harder things get for us culturally, and they will, The more difficult life becomes, the greater the persecution, the more inclined we might be to think, well, one day theirs is coming. Nothing wrong with leaning on and calling for justice. I'm all for calling for justice by our government. We should do that. It's the government's job, and that glorifies God when the government acts as a minister of God, which it is, Romans 13. But at the same time, you and I must be willing to say, in light of what I understand about total depravity, that could have been me holding that weapon and executing innocent people. It is but God's restraint. The total depravity into which you are born and I am born is utterly twisted by Arminian theology and leads to a willingness to say that I am not as depraved as someone else and you and I must say, yes, we were. We are born into the same depravity and yet it's manifested more fully The more we become desensitized to sin, the more we engage in that sin willfully. But the depravity into which we are born yet gives us a richer understanding of the kind, gracious restraint of the hand of God. When we look in the mirror and we say, okay, I haven't committed these sins or these or these. But when we stand on the street corner and say, oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like him. We show ourselves to be what? Pharisees, we're hypocrites. God, thank you that I'm not like that guy because I tithe. I pray multiple times a day. How can we be effectively involved in evangelism and the salvation of the false teacher? We'd like that, wouldn't we? If we ourselves are not willing to purify ourselves even as Jesus Christ is pure, which is the call upon our lives. We can't leave this out. In 2 Peter 2, verse 20, Peter says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. This is the matter of a greater accountability for having heard and having seemed to embrace truth. And ultimately, rejecting it for the sake of falsehood that's more enticing. Let me ask you, what's more enticing? Calvinism or Arminianism? Calvinism is not enticing. It's repulsive to the flesh. It offends man at every level. What do you mean I'm totally depraved? What do you mean God is totally sovereign? What are we, robots? Many times have you heard that phrase. That phrase denies the reality that Calvinistic theology, Reformed theology, passionately embraces the commands of the Bible that call man to responsibility to obey God. Please understand this. This is not how it works. It's not as if Arminianism is committed to the commands of the Bible and Calvinism is somehow committed to the character of God. Calvinism is passionately devoted to both. Arminianism is committed to the commands of God, saying we can do them because, well, God commanded us to do them. And then, to be honest, some commitment to a high view of God. But it's utterly illogical, and it's utterly impossible. Peter is very clear. In verse 21 of 2 Peter 2, For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit. You see the picture? Follow me on this. This is huge. This is so important. As you intend to be and think evangelistically, to be effective for Christ and seeing people won unto him by him, it's important that you understand this. This is what Peter is talking about here. You have an unbeliever who is persuaded by some fashion of truth. And so he embraces a God legalistically. He comes unto that God. He presents himself to that God. It's not the God of the Bible. He presents himself to that God, rejecting the concept of total depravity, rejecting the concept of sovereign grace, and he leans on that. And he believes in that. And his evangelism reflects that. So the legalism that brought him into whatever it is, you know, some religious conduct, some religious thing, he attempts to superimpose that upon others. And so what does he become with them? He becomes hard-hearted with them. Why won't they listen to me? I sent you an email this week pleading with you to not do that to your unsaved loved ones, but to pray for them, to love them, to minister to them, to think biblically, to be prepared with the hope that is in you, knowing that it is God that uses truth, not so much as he uses you. Yes, he uses you, but it's his commitment to his adoptive children that leads to the blessing that you and I experience as we faithfully and lovingly and humbly communicate truth. That proverb that Peter quotes, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, you see the illustration? She washes herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Why? Because she washed herself. Arminianism calls you to wash yourself, it calls you to clean yourself up. Many of you would faithfully and honestly and humbly attest to the fact that you lived your life so long. Thinking that way, and maybe you were actually in Christ, maybe it is that God had saved you, he had caused you to be born again, but you pridefully and, and lazily wouldn't really attempt to plumb the depths of sound biblical truth and subject yourself to sound biblical teaching Because it didn't feel good. Point number four. False teachers will deceive believers by twisting truth. Peter says, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. If you're reading the King James or the New King James you see the word pernicious and this is an interesting matter which I hope will encourage you and stimulate some interest in your part to really have a deeper understanding of biblical exegesis we're very committed to this here in the spring my hope is uh, with you men to take you through a book on hermeneutics how to honestly approach the scripture in a way that leads to proper conclusions There's hard work in that, but it's truly worth every ounce of effort that you pour into it. The King James and New King James translations are taken from different manuscripts from which we get the NAS, the NIV, the ESV. And so there are times where the manuscripts are substantially different. This is a moment where they are a little bit different. So the word translated as pernicious in your King James or your New King James, as you can tell, is translated as sensuality in the ESV. Very different words. And yet, in the Greek, they're almost identical, but they're not. So in the the actual Greek manuscripts, the words are slightly different, but rightly translated in the King James the way it is, and in the NAS and the ESV the way it is. I'm passionately convinced that the more reliable manuscripts are those from which we get the NAS and the ESV. Now, please hear me when I tell you, That does not diminish the veracity of your King James or your New King James. I don't know of any legitimate scholar who would tell you, discard your King James or your New King James. That said, I want to help you understand the significance of Peter's use of this word here, sensuality, in relation to a false teacher. It is a sexual allurement that leads to sexual deviancy and immorality and eventually entraps those who are enticed by it. Having rejected Christ, their lewdness and debauchery was restrained, proving them ultimately to be false converts. So they showed themselves to appear to be bought by the master, proving themselves to have not been bought by the master. In part, because of their sexual deviancy combined with their sexual allurement. others. It is an abandonment of morality, and the modern pseudo-church knows little of the need of restraint from it. The modern church has little interest in exposing and expunging sensuality, sexual immorality. There's almost no interest in it. Countless people in modern churches, engage in sexual sin with absolutely no effort on the part of the leadership to strengthen them to the place of overcoming that sin. That's really the mindset we ought to have toward it. Not, well, they're sinners, let's get rid of them. We'd have to get rid of all of us if that were the case. We're all sinners. And nowhere is this more sinister than in the Roman Catholic Church. It is very sinister in multiple venues, but it is nowhere more sinister than in the Roman Catholic Church today. In an article on a website called apostasy.org, August 24th, 2013, over the past several decades, some major newspapers have been exposing the problem of priestly sexual abuse of boys, girls, women, and even nuns within the Roman Catholic Church here in the United States of America. Please carefully consider the following quotations. A large part of the history of celibacy is the story of the degradation of women and, and an invariable consequence, frequent abortions and infanticide. You understand what's being said here? The matter of celibacy, the person who's called to the ministry is required to remain unmarried. The report goes on to say, according to the 1996 survey of nuns in the United States, which was intentionally never published, it is reported that a minimum of 34,000 Catholic nuns, about 40% of all American nuns, claimed to have been sexually abused. Three of every four of these nuns claimed they were sexually victimized by a priest, nun, or other religious person. Two out of five nuns who stated they were sexually abused claimed that their exploitation included some form of genital contact. All nuns who claimed repeated sexual exploitation reported that they were pressured by religious superiors for sexual favors. That is a quote from a book called Lucifer's Lodge by William Kennedy. The website report goes on to say, quoting a nun, They will kick you in the stomach. Many of the precious little girls have babies under their hearts, and it doesn't bother a priest to kick you in the stomach with a baby under your heart. He doesn't mind. The baby is going to be killed anyway because those babies are born in the convent. I have delivered those babies with these hands, one nun said, and what I've seen with my eyes and done with my hands, I just challenge the whole world to say it isn't true. The policy of silence and cover up concerning sexual abuse within the Roman Catholic Church promoted by the Vatican is mind boggling. The vast amount of data which the Vatican collected concerning the sexual activity of the Roman Catholic clergy makes it clear that the Pope and the Curia were well aware of how widespread and common the sexual abuse problem was in the Roman Catholic Church when it was initially exposed. It did nothing to redress the situation but continued with a policy of cover-up and silence. It seems that the only reason the Vatican ordered these secret sex studies was to get a global picture of where they stood and to develop informed strategies for hiding the problem in the future. Never was the welfare of the victims of sexual abuse taken into consideration, nor was the question of broken chastity vows by the celibate priests, apparently of any concern, again taken from Lucifer's Lodge, satanic ritual abuse in the Catholic Church. Paul, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, says, Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, speaking of those who creep into the church to be teachers, He says, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I've had multiple conversations with folks who've come out of the Catholic Church over the years, and it's not unusual for someone to tell me, you know, I went to that man, I went to the priest to get an answer about a theological issue, and I was shunned. I've heard that many, many times where there was an effort to go to the man who supposedly had theological truth to get an answer, and the response was an angry, you know, it's really none of your business, just let me deal with this. In the Roman Catholic Church, it is quite common for men in the priesthood, harnessed into an inability to marry and fulfill their God-given desires within God's design of a holy union between one man and one woman, to do so behind closed doors with children whose parents don't know the false teaching often leads to a sensual lifestyle, mainly because they are deceived by the false teaching itself. In Titus 1, verse 7, Paul says, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. I won't ask for a show of hands but you either are someone or know someone who was ushered into a position of responsibility within the church without any vetting at all. Oh, you're breathing? Sign up. But that's not unusual. No interest in protecting children from someone who may or may not be a problem. Sensuality is the mark of false conversion. And yet, it is quite easily overlooked by the offender when he or she is engaged in religious conduct. Right? Just do some things. Just, you know, be faithful-ish to some stuff. And more than likely, whatever those issues are, you know, people will, will overlook it and everybody loses. Everybody loses. There's a massive cover-up of sex scandals among the clergy in America, and only time will reveal just how awful it really is. Many of you will remember the oceans of tears shed by the false teacher, Jimmy Swaggert when he had been caught with a prostitute. His famous line was, "'I have sinned,' amongst an overwhelming flood of tears. Was he sincere? I don't know. But he went right back to the false theology that led him to the sensuality that caused him to do what he did. Benny Hinn, in regard to Paula White, both of whom are false teachers, made this comment in 2009. Here's a newsflash. I'm married, and I have friendships with women. He later said a friendship did develop Hear this, no immorality whatsoever. The people out there are making it sound like we had an affair, that's a lie. Later in 2010, he said, quote, I don't care how strong you are. I don't care if the anointing of God is mighty on you. Nobody wants to be alone. I don't care who you are. I'm a human being just like you, close quote. This was in his response, to the adultery that he committed with the false teacher, Paula White. Sky's the limit. There's no ceiling on what a false teacher can commit himself to do. Years ago, when Bill Clinton was being exposed, John MacArthur said these words, a man who will lie is a man who will do anything. Massive wisdom concentrated in a very few short words. A man who will lie is a man who will do anything. And the cogs start turning when people hear statements like that. Well. Okay, I know I've lied, but I'm not one of those people who will do anything. How do you know? If you will do what you are currently doing and you are willing to lie about it, how do you know that you are not ultimately going to be willing to do more? As the desensitization process unfolds more fully. Pastor Tulian Tavijian is a classic example. So we've addressed the Roman Catholic organization. We've To some degree addressed the charismatic sliver of the world and I wouldn't call it Christianity. Tullian Tavijan is a reformed theologian. We would hold to the same soteriology. Where do we differ? Well let me say this before I tell you where we differ. We couldn't possibly differ more on this issue and it's the matter of sanctification. It is the doctrine of sanctification. In July of this year, he reported publicly, Last week I was approached by our church leaders, and they asked me about my own affair. I admitted to it, and it was decided that the best course of action would be for me to resign. Both my wife and I are heartbroken over our actions, and we ask you to pray for us and our family that God would give us the grace we need to weather this heart-wrenching storm. The back story is Tullyan teaches antinomianism. He teaches the idea that sanctification comes exclusively from looking at the person of Jesus. So the commands of the Bible are not things for which you are responsible until you feel like being responsible. How do you get to the place where you feel like being responsible? You examine the person of Jesus. Now we are by no means dismissive of the importance of looking at the person of Jesus. Peter himself calls us to be effective in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. To be effective in the knowledge of Jesus Christ is to know that we are called to holiness. And so the commands of the Bible are ours, regardless of whether or not we feel like making them ours. And so the debate is well, so do you obey in the flesh? That really misses the point. You obey. You obey because the master has called you to obey, and part of that obedience is confessing a sinful heart that doesn't want to obey. But the person who says, well, I'll obey when I feel like it, shows himself committed to antinomianism, really. You've heard of Keswick theology. We've talked about it a number of times. Keswick theology says, let go and let God. So you're off the hook until God gives you that unction that fervor for doing what you're supposed to do. Six weeks after making this public statement, Tulian Chavigian filed for divorce with his wife. A little more backstory. His wife committed adultery first. And I don't know the details, and I don't need to know the details, behind what led up to that in terms of the interpersonal interaction between them. But his theology of sanctification says, I'm a wretched sinner. That's all I am. I'm just a faithless, wretched, depraved sinner. And that's the end of it. What does that allow for? Everything. There's no limit. If that's all I am, and it sounds noble, doesn't it? You ever know somebody like that? Oh, you know, I'm not. I'm just worthless. Yeah, you know, you guys, you guys are great. Oh, you guys are wonderful. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm pitiful. Really? Is that what you really mean, or do you are you looking for somebody to say, No, you're not pitiful. You're, you're wonderful. And on the other hand, it might well be a personal, self invitation, to sin. I had a friend tell me years ago, you know, I'm just a sexual person. I said, you mean you're a member of the human race? Is that what you meant to say? Tullian Chavidian said these words It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Sounds good, doesn't it? It's the gospel. What Jesus has done that alone can give God honoring animation to our obedience. The power to obey, in other words, comes from being moved and motivated by the completed work of Jesus for us. Sounds good, doesn't it? It's double talk. What does it dismiss? It dismisses the responsibility of obedience that leads to sanctification. Philippians 2. Work out your salvation. You'll never hear Tullian faithfully addressing that passage. Work out your salvation. For it is God Who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure? Who does the work? God or you? You do a work. He does a work. He performs the sanctification while you respond with obedience. And the result is you become less like self and more like Christ. And the person who says, oh, I'm just a wretched sinner, that's suspect. It sounds like an excuse. Tullian said... One of the insinuations whenever the doctrine of sanctification is discussed is that my effort, my works, my pursuit of holiness, my faith, my response, my obedience, and my practice of godliness keep me in God's good graces. This, however, undermines the clear biblical teaching that things between Christians and God are forever settled because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. When we imply that our works are for God and not our neighbor, we perpetuate the idea that God's love for us is dependent on what we do instead of on what Christ has done. It's double talk. It says, I don't do anything. God did it all. Listen, when Jesus said, it is finished, he was not talking about your sanctification. Otherwise, he would have taken you directly to heaven. Your sanctification is not finished. You know that, right? You know, mine's not finished. That's obvious. Hopefully not too obvious. (laughs) No, I know it's obvious. Second Peter two, verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. This is the warning from Peter. There are those who are barely escaping from those who live in error, the false teacher who lives in error, and he grabs hold of people with some enticing effort. Maybe he gives him gifts. Maybe he flatters him. Maybe he tells him, you know, you're really, you're really good at this. You're really gifted. And he brings him along. And what happens? And maybe he does things for him. Maybe he serves him in some way. And what happens? What happens is pretty soon he starts thinking, well, he couldn't be deceiving me. He loves me. and in fact, he doesn't because he's willing to say anything to get you to follow him. Peter goes on in our text for this morning to say, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Francis Schaeffer said, truth carries with it confrontation. Truth demands confrontation, loving confrontation, but confrontation nonetheless. In 2 Peter 3.15, Peter says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. See that? God in his elective determination is a patient God about whom you can say his patience is equal to what? To our salvation. You can count his patience as salvation. He will, because he is patient, save the elect. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Listen carefully to what Paul says. Peter is quoting Paul here, or he's addressing Paul's teaching. There are some things in them, Paul's teaching, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. It should not surprise us that there are false teachers who twist the truth and in so doing, persuade others to believe that which is not true. John 17, verse 14. Jesus says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then he says this, sanctify them. Think of it. The doctrine or the matter or the topic of sanctification is such a key issue in the Christian life. More than just bringing us to the place where we are becoming less like self and more like Christ. That's not the only issue where sanctification is important the doctrine or the matter of sanctification is important because it separates us from unbelievers it separates us from false teachers sanctify them jesus says sanctify them in the truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world so i have sent them into the world and for their sake i consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth Are you growing? Really? Are you more inclined to confess your sin to trusted believers today than you were a year ago? Are you finding that your pride, your reputation is far less important, in fact, immeasurably less important than your purity? And Therefore willing to sit under the right teaching, subject yourself to the right people, to actually be engaged in discipleship instead of pretending that you are. Peter goes on to say, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. In their greed. What is greed? It's a love of money. It's a love of money. I am certain you know someone who portrays himself as a pastor, spiritual leader, who loves money. And that's his motive. This idea of exploitation is to get unfair gain from someone, to use their trust in you to steal from them. Why? Because of greed. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And the charismatic culture nurtures this. No, no problem finding a large number of people who will say, yeah, teach me how to be rich. Well, God wants you to prosper. So give a seed. Paula White is among one of the masters at this, speaking at another heretic's church, T.D. Jakes. She called upon the congregation, and I forget which psalm it was, but some psalm, you know, with a number, a reference number. Psalm, let's say it was 210, let's say Psalm 210. She said, some of you, some of you out there, you need to give $2.10. I don't have to tell you where this is headed, do I? T.D. Jake's church brought in record-breaking gifts that day. All given for the sake of the false gospel, because people were told, as long as you throw a seed, God will bring the harvest. Preflo Dollar said these magical words, Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity. That's why Jesus bled and died, so you could be rich. Tell that to Paul the Apostle, huh? Who was content in all things. What shall we do? What do we do? What do we do with this? We're really dealing with a real problem. A realistic problem in the modern church that there are false teachers. What do we do with this? Well, three things. Number one, be discerning. Be discerning. To be discerning is not to be unloving. In fact, love and discernment go hand in hand. Why would you want to be discerning? Because you love. Because you love God. Because you love people. You want to be discerning enough to be a rock for those who will come to you for counsel. Number two, Pray. And I mean really pray. Let it be a matter of passion for you that you would pray that false teachers would be exposed. You know people who are sitting under false teachers this morning. And it's leading them into sensuality. Or it's doing nothing to uncover their sensuality. Three, speak the truth in love so that those that you love are impacted, they're blown over, The old man is executed, if you will, and the new man arises up out of that difficult scenario where you have communicated truth in love. Be ready to do that. But here's another question. You might be asking, what do I do if I'm uncertain after all this of my own salvation? I mean, this text will rivet the weak believer and certainly the false convert, and it should. I don't want to leave those of you who may be asking this question with a hopeless disposition. I would ask you to fast forward to the last words of Peter in this letter where he says in chapter 3 verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Now, Peter here, I believe, primarily, clearly, is speaking to believers who might lose what? Their stability by being subject to those who hold to false theology. A little dabbling here and there with false theology is going to knock you off center. That may be the case. Maybe you're subjecting yourself to someone on the Internet who just feels right. yet what he is saying is utterly opposed to what you're hearing here. Peter goes on to say, and this is really the issue, this is the issue of this letter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You see that? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now someone like An antinomian teacher or preacher or pastor might say, yeah, that's what we're saying. And we would say, I don't think so. I don't think so. Because if you're genuinely growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then your life will glorify him both now and in the day of eternity. Because you're putting off sin. And you're putting on that Christ. You're putting on that Savior, and you're growing to hate your sin the way he hates it that led him to die for it. Whatever your sin is this morning, whatever the sin of someone that you're trying to minister to, you're trying to minister to someone who's struggling with a particular sin, this is the issue. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To what extent? What does that look like? It looks like the glorification of Christ now in your life and in heaven In your life. Father, thank you for the immense clarity with which our brother Peter writes these words to us and for your glory. We would ask that you would help us, Father, even now in this moment as we sing, even as Brad called us earlier to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other, that in this very moment we would in fact grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that the result would be that your glory would be on display in this place. Trusting that your glory will be on display in our resurrected bodies in heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.